Hello. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to the last presentation for Listening in the Sound Kitchen 2003. Um, we're very proud to have, we're very honored to have Pauline Oliveros give the final presentation, the keynote address. And without further ado, let's give her a welcoming applause. Thank you. Well, I'm going <clears> to <throat> kind of rest myself on the on the deck here, and um, I wanted to thank uh, everyone for inviting me here, uh, Dan, Truman, and the graduate students, and so on, and also to compliment them on running this festival in this manner. Uh, it's been very uh, enlightening in a lot of ways to to hear everyone on the panels and to hear the concerts and installations. So I appreciate that. And uh, so thank you, everybody, for that. Um, <clears throat> and I've been kind of enjoying uh, certain themes that have been going on. And so I'm going to start out. Um, uh, I've got, I've got uh, three parts to this uh, presentation. And I'm going to present a couple of keys for the that you can take note of for the <laughs> for this keynote thing. Uh, the first day, uh, well, before I then after I finish a few of these remarks uh, that I'm uh, extemporizing as the keys and the notes, um, I'm going to share with you uh, some of my work, uh, which is about deep listening uh, practice, and I've, I'm. I have a book in progress, uh, first draft, which is called Deep Listening, a Composer's Sound Practice. Um, and so I'm going to share the preface and the introduction to that. And then uh, I'm going to invite you to do some energy practices so we can stop some of the text flow that's going on and do some things together. Um, so that's the shape of the, of the keynote uh, today. So in the first uh, uh, panel, the thing that struck me was that at the, toward the end of, of the uh, talk about aesthetics, uh, uh, and this was an all-male panel, uh, there was the mention of Britney Spears. And uh, so I thought this was really rather interesting. And uh, it seemed that uh, the attitude toward Britney Spears was one of condescension, uh, it seemed to me, um, and that her music, of course, was pretty lightweight um, and coming from the entertainment world. Uh, so I suggested, well, what would it be like if, uh, if you had Britney Spears here and on the panel? What do you think she would have to say? Because I felt like she wasn't there to defend herself. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> so I'm defending her, and uh, uh, as synchronicity would have it, I went back to my uh, room at the end, the Peacock Inn, uh, that night, and turned on the television set, and there was Britney Spears being interviewed by uh, uh, a news correspondent, and it was really interesting. It really got interesting, because I got to see what she does. 
Um, and I have to admit that uh, being in the community that I am with you, all of you uh, and many others, um, my first uh, priorities are not necessarily towards what's going on in, in, uh, in entertainment. But when I watched the interview and I heard her talk and heard her express some of her concerns, I, I felt like there was something there to be, uh, uh, to find out about. And of course, uh, there is the, the famous, uh, already famous Madonna, Britney Spears uh, kiss, which took place on the news. Not a few, and I actually saw that, but I was still not very, very well informed about Britney Spears. And uh, <laughs> so it was a, you know, a moment of, uh, of keen interest um, and riveting moment, just as uh, we had uh, Bonnie Mist and uh, John Appleton at the end of the concert today doing the Britney Spears Madonna kiss. I thought it was pretty cute and, <laughs> and, and really nice, uh, you know, leading on to what I'm going to, to tell you about. So, um, I mean, Britney Spears, of course, is, is, a, is a Madonna protege in a way. But uh, as I watched that interview go on and saw, uh, saw her in action, I was really fascinated because, um, I mean, how many of you do 250 push-ups a day or sit-ups a day? Anybody? Anybody for 250 sit-ups a day? Well, Britney Spears... It keeps herself in great shape, and uh, <laughs> she does that many sit-ups. And I thought, hmm. And I watched her. I watched her dancing. She does precision aerobic dancing. So uh, what she's doing, uh, as many as Michael Jackson is doing, is expressing uh, the precision of the body through dance in in, in the entertainment field. Which, if you if you trace it back. I mean, <clears throat> uh, entertainment today is, uh, is, is somewhat lightweight, but on the other hand, it has roots in shamanism and uh, in uh, feats of uh, physicality and endurance. And so that this, uh, this is what is missing. I mean, this is one of the keys and this is one of the themes that has been talked about throughout the conference is where's the body? and uh, what's happened to physicality. Uh, we have this nice little aluminum box that we all are staring onto the screen, which is a representation of neuronal activity, which we call consciousness. Uh, and then if we trace that back, we come to uh, Gutenberg. We, that was mentioned today in, this, in the ancient geek panel, uh, Gutenberg, and I have to call your attention to this, to this that um, uh, when the printing press uh, appeared uh, in, in Heidelberg, in Germany, in whatever it was, 15, who knows what it was, 14 something, 15 something, I can't remember the date. Who, who remembers? Four, four, 1550, thank you. Uh, it was 13 years later uh, when the first... Uh, which trials began, and 13 women were executed uh, in Heidelberg. Everywhere that the printing press was introduced, including Salem in the, in the United States, uh, were followed shortly uh, by witch, witch hunts, 
and executions. And what it uh, represented was the beginning of, uh, not the beginning, but actually the uh, uh, suppression of, of women and the exclusion of women from uh, uh, text-based uh, text uh, discourse. And uh, you go back further, before the printing press, you go back to the introduction of the alphabet. The alphabet introduced to uh, societies, uh, that's when, when the suppression of images, images and suppression of the body began because it was possible to um, uh, symbolize uh, uh, conscious, conscious thought. And so then the printing press uh, uh, started the, the great uh, sweep of, of getting rid of anyone who um, uh, had notions of imagery of any kind. Uh, the, the alphabet was getting rid of the goddess actually, and also getting rid of sexuality um, because sexuality is dangerous uh, and it, it detracts from what was actually the rewiring of the brain by bringing the alphabet uh, into existence. Uh, the left hemisphere developed uh, uh, through, through this means. And there's lots of uh, uh, benefits to it, but there's also a big sacrifice. And uh, so what I'm trying to uh, encapsulate in this, these open remarks are that, um, that this suppression uh, has continued to the present. Uh, and as we see, I mean, if the panels uh, have been uh, all male, except with the one exception, and that's uh, with me being on one of the panels. Which panel was I on? I forgot. <laughs> I was on the panel the, the first day, yes. Um, what was it about? I forgot that. Frontiers. frontiers, okay, yes, the frontiers. Okay, so that's the frontier. So that's what I'm trying to tie this to, that uh, there is a frontier, uh, certainly, that we, we, we didn't discuss. Uh, and it has to do with sexuality and spirituality. Uh, and these are the two uh, major, or two uh, major forces in, in life uh, and, and in music. Um, and in, uh, in the uh, uh, reductionism that has come about through the scientific method, through, which has come about because of the alphabet and because of the printing press, uh, and because of the suppression of anything that uh, doesn't uh, serve uh, an intellectual uh, pursuit, then we come out with an equation that's somewhat and quite a bit unbalanced. So now, what happened? Um, somewhere along the line, uh, in about the 20s, um, uh, photographs, began to appear in newsprint. And it was the uh, beginning of images returning to uh, public view. Because images were idolatrous and forbidden in, in many cultures, uh, along with uh, women becoming property and, con and being controlled. Uh, 
and not out of control. So, <laughs> uh, so, the, so that that mean, meant the suppression of sexuality and uh, uh, coming into our own uh, time. I know I'm jumping back and forth. I mean, this is covering many uh, millennia. So, uh, but um, we have uh, a kind of liberation that has occurred through imagery through being, being able to see things, uh, to capture images and to see them in newspapers, to have television uh, and to have video. Uh, and uh, so that uh, the body is being viewed again and coming back into, the pic- into a picture that has been missing in all this time. So... Um, See if I can regain my threads here. There's so much to to cover in in this kind of little brief report. But uh, Madonna and Britney Spears are expressing what is missing. Also, Michael Jackson. What is missing from our culture, uh, which is the sensuality, the respect for the body, uh, and they're they're using their bodies to. Uh, to express it as precisely as they possibly can uh, through training and discipline, which is, you know, a very, very kind of an interesting paradox. Um, now, <clears throat> when uh, on television, I mean, there, there's also this, this great, uh, there's a great fear of pornography. Um, uh, because I mean that's uh, also the the um, bubbling up of uh, all of the repression that has gone on in in our society. Uh, the fact that uh, people need uh, pornographic imagery to get themselves going, um, and you know to release their inhibitions uh, or many other kinds of things. Um, I'm not. I'm not uh, an advocate of pornography. I'm simply an observer uh, at this point of what is happening and what has happened, and what has been for for so many uh, many uh, millennia, uh, and in many different forms. Um, and there's uh, the separation that has occurred, so that sexuality is. Between people, is, is, there's a, there's a uh, distancing and separation that prevents the sensuality uh, and, and also prevents the spirituality that can be, uh, that can be there in, in the sharing of that particular kind of energy. Um, and it's come down now, the ultimate form of reductionism uh, which I observed on television just a few weeks ago, uh, when I observed uh, a show which was devoted to fucking machines. I don't know if anyone saw this show. Did anybody see it but me? Was I imagining it? Well, I saw it. I saw it on television, and I saw there was a, there were a group of... of uh, guys who had uh, developed these machines uh, 
and and they were uh, you know quite a variety of machines that could produce uh, different sensations uh, and of course uh, I mean uh, substitute for intercourse uh, between two two human beings so <laughs> I say as I say I thought I was the ultimate in reductionism and there was a woman uh, who came to try the machines out and I have to tell you that she was very happy. <laughs> <laughs> she was very, very happy, um, and uh, of course the, the the men who had made the machines were also happy that she was happy. <laughs> okay, so tell me, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, this uh, integration of, or, or interaction of human and machine, uh, this is expressing something very, very important, I think. Because as I, I'm saying, this is, uh, this is what is missing. Um, in, our, um, in our lives, uh, not, not everybody is missing out, but uh, just the, to have a society or a social uh, or a community of, of people who are at ease, with the with the forces uh, of nature and of life and of of spirit, whatever that may be, uh, I think is is very key, very key for anyone who is um, um, designing designing instrumentation uh, and designing uh, or creating uh, music or creating media, whatever it is, uh, to have the full spectrum uh, of life uh, available, life energies available to one. And to be able to represent that or to uh, have, it, have it before us in a way that we can feel that. Now, Lost my thread here, uh, but you can bear with me. Uh, I think that's the, the the keynote that I wanted to deliver to anyone who is in, uh, is involved with technology in any way, and uh, you know to also to just to note. Oh, it's virtual virtual space that I was wanting to talk about because uh, the virtuality, uh, what we're looking. Forward to uh, what is going, what is coming. Um, one of the things that um, uh, has been very important to me is that I have a friend who uh, had a near-death experience in China, and this friend is, is a composer. His name is Rip Heyman. He went to Columbia. Um, Rip uh, had a uh, his heart stopped, and and then he was revived. And since then, I think it's been about 12 years now, he has a, uh, an implant uh, which, is, uh, which kicks his heart back on. It's a little computer inside, it's inside his body, and when, when his heart stops, it gets kicked back on again. And I happened to be with him one day when, when this happened. He uh, gave a little, he said, I, I'm, I, I think I'm having a spell 
And then he screamed a little and fell to the floor. And uh, then the computer kicked his heart back on and he revived and he had to rest for uh, about 10 minutes and then he was okay again. So when I experienced that, I realized that uh, this, that my friend would not be alive had he not had this uh, little computer. And I realized also, I mean, I began to really look around and, and understand that there's research going on all over the world for the hybridization of humans and computers. Uh, I mean, I've given a gross example of uh, machine uh, analog technology <laughs> with the... Uh, those machines, but uh, with uh, with with this uh, kind of, of uh, moving forward uh, and and the intensity of the research that is going on. I mean, there are interesting predictions, uh, such as Ray Kurzweil, who uh, in, in MIT, who predicts that by the end of the century there won't be any discernible difference between humans and com computers. You can take that at wh wherever you want to go, but we have already moved in very far in that direction. Uh, we already are amplifying in our um, in IQ, our intelligence quotients, whatever that may be, with computers. That's quite clear. Um, if we didn't have them, uh, uh, there's a lot that would stop right now. Um, I wrote an article which you can, that I'll refer you to, which is called Quantum Improvisation, the Cybernetic Presence. It's on my website. Uh, and in that article, I uh, talked about what Kurzweil had said, and I also uh, uh, decided that if this is true that in, in, in the future we're going to have this hybridization, then I, then I wanted to design my music chip. <laughs> so it's that I, I described what I would like to have uh, as enhancement. Uh, I mean, it included a few things like being able to recognize any frequency at any time, any duration, any uh, timbre, uh, um, and, and so on, but it also had uh, something about the uh, uh, recognition of, of beneficial uh, uses of music and functioning of music um, in my uh, scenario for a, an enhancement uh, for myself. Um, but I think that the, the young people here in the audience ought to be thinking about this because uh, um, things are changing rapidly and uh, you're going to be confronted with it sooner or later. Uh, and so it's, it's important then uh, that your understanding of sexuality be clear and that your understanding of spirituality be clear and that your understanding of the proper training and discipline for yourself be clear. And that this goes into the work that you do so that you can feel at ease and comfortable with what it is that you're doing. There's always going to be the crossing points and the uh, questioning. And the, the thing is that ethics 
and, and uh, moral val- values are constructed. Uh, we're not born with them necessarily. We're born with an open heart and spirit. But you have to learn a lot of things and create a lot of things. And so in your creations, uh, there's something to listen for. So that's my uh, keynote. <laughs> and uh, so now I want to just uh, uh, share my uh, uh, book and then get us uh, to doing some things. Okay, this is the preface uh, to this book, which uh, mostly was have been writing uh, in in the past year, and this is a quotation to begin with from uh, Lucia Jogoszewski, who's no longer with us, but she was a composer and uh, yeah, friend. Uh, quote: "The first concern of all music, in one way or another, is to shatter the indifference of hearing." the callousness of sensibility to create that moment of solution we call poetry. Our rigidity dissolved when we occur reborn in a sense hearing for the first time, unquote. Deep listening is an evolving practice that comes from my experience as a composer, performer, improviser, and audience member. My training in music was generally centered on techniques for how to perform and appreciate music of the past. This type of education is generally true for most music students. Encouragement for composing or improvising and appreciation for new music was almost non-existent in my earliest music training, musical training. Most students do not realize that they have creative potential to make their own music as well as learning to perform traditional music. I was always fascinated with listening to my environment. From early childhood, I have been a listener. I grew up in a time when there existed a very rich and dense soundscape of insects, birds, and animals in Houston, Texas in the 1930s. The soundscape was filled with chirping, rasping crickets, frogs, and melodic mockingbirds. Sounds of the natural environment still engage my attention. Now, in the 21st century, that soundscape is considerably thinned out by asphalt, concrete pavements, and building developments. Houston still has cicadas and stereophonic corridors as you walk or drive the streets, but the frogs have mostly disappeared leaving their sonic niches unfilled except for the sounds of combustion engines. A modern technological soundscape has emerged. In high school, I became acquainted with inner listening, an altered state of consciousness full of inner sounds that engaged my attention and eventually made me want to compose. At the age of 16, I announced that I wanted to be a composer. I was in love with sounds, and to be a composer was my passion. Never mind that I did not know how to go about transmitting my inner sounds to outer form. I knew that composing was my path. My instrumental training included accordion and French horn. On my accordion, I performed a repertoire of diversity, including classical, Baroque, popular, and ethnic music. I played the horn in bands and orchestras, even in a large dance band. 
composing continued. At the age of 19, my attempts were finally successful when I managed to write a piano piece in two parts. Listening and notating were intense for me and a struggle. I became more and more absorbed in composing. Robert Erickson, my composition mentor, encouraged me to improvise my music. I began to improvise and to record the results if I was stuck in writing a piece. And eventually, improvisation became a way to get my ideas flowing. In 1960, nine years after I had composed my first piece, I won the Pacifica Foundation Award for my variations for sextet. Alfred Frankenstein, the music critic for the San Francisco Chronicle at the time, became my champion and my career as a composer was launched. Just as an aside, uh, Alfred uh, Frankenstein was in Chicago in the 30s and championed the music of Ruth Crawford and as black was in love with her and wanted to be her suitor and probably was for a while. Uh, through the 60s, I became absorbed in electronic music making. With this medium, I began to find the sounds that interested me and were most like the sounds in my inner listening. Two of my pieces from the period, one of four and Bye Bye Butterfly, were released on recordings and have become classics of the period. Bye Bye Butterfly was named the best piece of the 60s by John Rockwell of the New York Times, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> but, but these are the pieces that I had talked about when I was describing uh, working with my hands uh, with these oscillators in my the system that I created. <clears throat> so it was very much the physical body involved in, in the electronic music that I was making, uh, coming from my training as a performer. Validation by peers and critics and the small cash prize from Pacifica Foundation was encouraged and appreciated by me. I was no longer alone with my passion to compose, and I continued. That is why I feel it so important to educate, nourish, and encourage young composers today. I also like to encourage people without musical training to engage in improvisation and to experience making their own music. I began teaching electronic music at the University of California, San Diego, UCSD, in 1967. I was one of the few at the time who could teach electronic music, a field still relatively new to curriculum in American educational institutions. I established the electronic music program for graduate study at UCSD. During my tenure at UCSD, I taught the nature of music, a large course for the general student, a course that was originally devised by my colleague Wilbur Ogden. This course was hands-on. Every student was expected to compose and improvise even though most had no musical training. It was our conviction that appreciation would develop through participation in music training and music making. I composed Sonic Meditations, a body of work that could be done by persons without musical training. Sonic Meditations are based on patterns of attention. In other words, those pieces are ways of listening and responding. Sonic Meditations is the basis of deep listening. I noticed that many musicians were not listening to what they were performing. There was good hand-eye coordination in reading music, but listening was not necessarily a part of the performance. The musician was, of course, hearing, but listening all over, or attention to the space-time continuum, global, was not happening. 
There was disconnection from the environment, including the audience, as the music was played. Observing these phenomena prompted me to investigate human attention processes and strategies. I began with myself. I started to sing and play long tones and to listen and observe how these tones affected me mentally and physically. I noticed that I could change my emotional state by concentrating my attention to a tone. I noticed that I could feel my body responding with relaxation or tension. Prolonged practice brought about a heightened state of awareness that gave me a sense of well-being. In 1967, I wrote an article for Source magazine, Music of the Avant-Garde, uh, titled Some Sound Observation. The article described a kind of journey of listening to what was happening around me and to memories and ideas that were triggered by this listening. Soon, I was involving my students in exercises designed to bring their attention to listening through observation and sounding. Some of these results may be found in Software for People, essays from 1962 to 1981. Um, and this is a quote uh, from one of my students at the time uh, from one of those exercises. If I sit quietly with my, quote, if I sit quietly with my alarm clock, close my eyes and open my ears, at this point, the curtain rises and the performance begins. My very surroundings seem to come alive, each sound revealing the personality of its creator. There are several sounds which become fixed in my ear like some basso ostinato, the continuous whirrings of factory machinery in the distance and the hollow sound of plopping water in a nearby fountain. This background of sound is interrupted by the piercing motif of a bird a sudden breath of air sweeps across the deck. Pages of my book respond with quick snapping sounds. The door at the entrance squeaks and moans on the same pitch like an old rocking chair, then closes with a thud. I can hear the drapery from an opened window rustling against the coarse plastered walls while the drawing cord syncopates against the window panel." Unquote. I had really many, many beautiful writings that came just from these listening exercises from the student. It seemed to open them up in ways that they hadn't been before. While still at UCSD, I initiated research at the Project for Music Experiment Meditation Project. Met five days a week for nine weeks for four hours a day with 20 participants in the winter of 1972 we studied mind, body, and dream practice from a variety of guests and performed pieces from sonic meditations daily. This research project seeded deep listening practices. I, met, uh, I left UCSD in 1981 and moved to upstate New York. I was attracted by the rich variety of musical activity in the Hudson Valley and the diversity of traditional meditation practices available. I studied Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, yoga, and Taoist forms from accomplished teachers. These studies deepened my understanding and appreciation for meditation and confirmed my own practice as a composer and improviser. I led my first deep listening retreat in 1991 at the Rose Mountain Retreat Center in Las Vegas, New Mexico, uh, at the invitation of Andy and Eloise Gold. This retreat took place in a lovely mountain area at 8,000 feet above sea level. The center is in a relatively unspoiled location with very little technological sound intrusion except for occasional jet airliners. There's no local traffic. The location was inspiring for listening. 
I committed myself to 10 years of retreats at Rose Mountain and developed the forms of practice that are described in this book. Each retreat lasts for one week and proposed listening 24 hours a day. This includes listening through dreaming as well as waking. A period of silence or nonverbal time is included each day. Teaching with me at Rose Mountain were Eloise Goal, training creative movement, Tai Chi and Qigong, and I own listening through dreaming. As the number of, apart, uh, of participants returning each year increased, I answered a request for an advanced level by creating a three-year certificate program in 1995. The first certificates were awarded to six people in 1998, and the certificate qualifies the holder to teach a deep listening workshop. Deep listening retreats were also held for three years in Switzerland, one in Canada, one in Washington State, and deep listening workshops are held all over the world. Workshops introduce some of the material of the deep listening retreat, but are more limited in duration and scope. Workshops can be from one hour to a couple of days. Uh, my performances as an improvising composer are specially informed by my deep listening practice. I do practice what I preach. When I arrive on stage, I am listening and expanding to the whole of the space-time continuum of perceptible sound. I have no pre preconceived ideas. What I perceive as the continuum of sound and energy takes my attention and informs what I play. What I play is recognized consciously by me slightly milliseconds after I have played any sound. This altered state of consciousness in performance is exhilarating and inspiring. The music comes through as if I have nothing to do with it but allow it to emerge through my instrument and voice. It is even more exciting to practice whether I am performing or just living out my daily life. I'm pleased to be teaching deep listening at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, at beginning and advanced levels, and also at Mills College in Oakland, California, via online video chat with occasional personal visits. I'm also pleased to include essays and quotes by my students in this book concerning their practice of deep listening. So, how you doing? You gonna hold out a little longer for a few more words? I want to read the, the introduction and then we'll, uh, we'll do a little workshop. Anyone can practice deep listening. The form given in this book has evolved from many years of practice in workshops, retreats, and classes. What is deep listening? This question is answered in the process of practicing listening with the understanding that the complex waveforms continuously transmitted to the auditory cortex from the outside world by the ear require active engagement with attention. Prompted by experience and learning, listening takes place voluntarily. Listening is not the same as hearing, and hearing is not the same as listening. The ear is constantly gathering and transmitting information. However, attention to the auditory cortex can be tuned out. Very little of the information transmitted to the brain by the sense organs is perceived at a conscious level. Reactions can take place without consciousness. So what is consciousness? Consciousness was considered an epiphenomenon by the scientific community and not seriously studied until more recently. When I began my interest in this study in 1967, 68, uh, 
It, the, the word consciousness did not appear in scientific uh, journals or articles. Consciousness had no location. Furthermore, evoked potentials in the brain appear up to half a second before the individual is aware of the stimulus. The brain then remembers the stimulus as happening in the present moment or the immediate instant in, in one's sense of time. So perception in time is an illusion. So what is consciousness? Consciousness is awareness of stimuli and reactions in the moment. Consciousness is acting with awareness, presence, and memory. What is learned is retained and retrievable. Information, knowledge of events, feelings, and experiences can be brought forward from the past to the present. In this way, one has self-recognition. The ear makes it possible to hear and to listen. To hear physically means that vibrations or waveforms that are within the range of human hearing in frequency typically 16 to 20,000 hertz and amplitude 0.05 dB to 130 dB can be transmitted to the auditory cortex by the ear and perceived as sounds. However, the word hear has many more dynamics and meanings within a cultural history that is constantly changing. To hear, according to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, can mean to listen attentively, or that information has been received, especially by ear, or to hear somebody or something, or to consider something officially as a judge, commissioner, or memory, member of a jury, or to fully understand something, or to attend mass, or hear confession in a Roman Catholic church. Listening has very little definition compared to hearing. Though the two words are often used interchangeably, their meanings are different. To listen, according to the uh, Merriam-Webster dictionary, means to give attention to sound or sounds or to perceive with the ear. To hear with thoughtful attention, to consider seriously. To hear and to listen have a symbiotic relationship with somewhat interchangeable common usage. I differentiate to hear and to listen. To hear is the physical means that enables perception. To listen is to give attention to what is perceived, both acoustically and psychologically. Quote, hearing turns a certain range of vibrations into perceptible sounds, unquote. Listening takes place in the auditory cortex and is based on the experience of the waveforms transmitted by the ear to the brain. We learn to associate and categorize sounds, such as mama, papa, meow, running water, whistles, pops, clicks, and myriads more sounds through experience. Many waveforms after first experience are discarded, unnoticed, without conscious interpretation. Understanding and interpreting what the ear transmits to the brain is a process developing from instantaneous survival reactions to ideas that drive consciousness. The listening process continues throughout one's lifetime. The word listen also has a cultural history and changing dynamics. Quote, the relationship between the physical stimulus and the phenomenal perception is not clear cut. The phenomenal world of acoustic events of a listener is not necessarily that described by the physical properties of the sound energy. There is no sound pressure variation that will always lead to one and only one perception. Similarly, there is no perception that always comes from one and only one pressure variation. If the converse were true, 
if for every different sound percept there was a unique pattern of sound pressure, and if each different sound pressure pattern led to a unique percept, then the problem of auditory perception would be solved, and not by psychologists. It would be solved by physicists who could accurately measure the sound pattern. Perceiving would become rote memorizing. All that would be necessary would be associating each sound pattern with its name or meaning. There's reductionism. This is not the case. Listening is not the same as hearing. The physical pressure wave enables perception but does not force it. Listening is active. It allows age, experience, expectation, and expertise to influence perception. This is from uh, Stephen Handel's uh, book, Listening, An Introduction to the Perception of Auditory Events from um, MIT Press. Uh, and it's a very thick book. Uh, he measured everything that he could possibly measure with whatever he had to measure it with. But it still ended with a chapter uh, 13, which is one page, which says uh, the end of the story is not here. Uh, it has to be the experience of everyone uh, to understand what listening is. And that's where I come in. So what is deep listening? Quote, acoustic space is where time and space merge as they are articulated by sound. Uncle. Deep has to do with complexity and boundaries or edges beyond ordinary or habitual understandings. The subject is too deep for me, or she is deep one. A subject that is too deep surpasses one's present understanding or has too many unknown parts to grasp easily. A deep one defies stereotypical knowing and may take either a long time or never to understand or get to know. Deep, coupled with listening, or deep listening for me, is learning to expand the perception of sounds to include the whole space-time continuum of sound, encountering the vastness and complexities as much as, possibly, as possible. Simultaneously, one ought to be able to target a sound or sequence of sounds as a focus within the space-time continuum and to perceive the detail or trajectory of the sound or sequence of sounds. Such focus should always return to or be within the whole of the space-time continuum or the context. Now, recently there was the news that there's a sound coming from a black hole, and uh, this sound is uh, said to be 57 octaves below B-flat. And that uh, is a very interesting uh, kind of exercise in, in uh, imagination to try to go down in your uh, inner listening octave by octave. Where, how far can you go in 57, how far down can you get in that 57 octave uh, in imagining what that sound might be like? And then you have to understand that the duty cycle of this sound from the black hole is uh, one, one cycle of it takes 10 million years to complete. Mm -hmm. um, and so that sort of gives you a, a bit of <laughs> something to contemplate in terms of the vastness of our uh, universe. And then you can go in the other direction. This is uh, the quantum direction of uh, the phonon, which is a particle of sound. Uh, like uh, the phonon is to uh, sound as the photon is to light, 
phonon uh, uh, could exist in, say, one ten millionth of a second, say. So if you take 10 million year cycle, uh, one, t one ten millionth of <laughs> bit of, to, to imagine your time scale, then things begin to take on a new perspective, I think. Anyways, that's deep. Um, <laughs> so what is the difference between deep listening and meditation? Deep listening is a practice that is intended to heighten and expand consciousness of sound in as many dimensions of awareness and attentional dynamics as humanly possible. The source for deep listening as a practice comes from my background and experience as a composer of concert music, as a performer and improviser. Deep listening comes from, my, from noticing my listening or listening to my listening and discerning the effects on my mind-body continuum from listening to others, to art, and to life. Deep listening is a practice and term that does not come from any religious context, even though the words sometimes are used by religious practitioners. Thich Nhat Hanh is a Zen Buddhist monk whose usage of the term deep listening has a specific context as one of the five mindfulness trainings that he proposes. This is a compassion-centered listening to restore communication in order to relieve suffering and bring happiness to all beings. Listening as a practice in this sense would be training to respond with calmness and clarity of mind. It is a determination and commitment to reconcile and resolve conflicts. Meditation in all the meanings of the world is found and defined in diverse religions and spiritual practices. Meditation is used in all its rich variety of meanings to calm the mind and to promote receptivity or concentration. In religious settings, attention is directed to moral and ethic ethical issues, values, beliefs, and tenets of the particular faith and to connection with the divine or a divine being or beings. Whether one is dwelling on something carefully and continually or engaging in a serious study of a particular topic, planning or considering an action, meditation, both religious and secular, is attention, engaged in particular ways. There is emptying, expansion, and contraction of the mind. There is relaxation, uh, relaxation or letting go and focus, attention to a point. Meditation implies discipline and control. There is something to practice. Deep listening is a form of meditation. Attention is directed to the interplay of sounds and silences or sound-silence continuum. Sound is not limited to musical or speaking sounds, but is inclusive of all perceptible vibrations, sonic formations. The practice is intended to expand consciousness to the whole space-time continuum or of sound silences, sound-slash-silences. Deep listening is a process that extends the listener to this continuum as well as to focus instantaneously on a single sound, engagement to targeted detail or sequences of sound silence. In order to get to the discipline and control that meditation develops, relaxation as well as concentration is essential. The practice of deep listening is intended to, is intended to facilitate creativity in art and life through this form of meditation. Creativity means the formation of new patterns. Animals are deep listening. 
or deep listeners. When you, listen, when you enter an environment where there are birds, insects, or animals, they are listening to you completely. You are received. Your presence may be the difference between life and death for the creatures of the environment. Listening is survival. Humans have ideas. Ideas drive consciousness forward to new perceptions and perspectives. Sometimes these ideas are very faint. So it takes deep listening to bring them forward. So listening for the faintest voice in your inner listening is a good practice. Sounds carry intelligence. Ideas, feelings, and memories are triggered by sounds. If you're too narrow in your awareness of sounds, you're likely to be disconnected from your environment. Too much information is coming in to the auditory cortex. Our habit is narrowed, listening to only what seems of value and concern to the listener. All else is tuned out or discarded as garbage. Compassion, spiritual development, and understanding comes from listening impartially to the whole space-time continuum of sound, not just what one is presently concerned about. In this way, discovery and exploration can take place. New fields of thought can be opened and the individual may be expanded and find opportunity to connect in new ways to communities of interest. Practice enhances openness. The level of awareness of soundscape brought about deep, by deep listening can lead to the possibility of shaping the sound of technology and of urban environments. Deep listening designers, engineers, and city planners could enhance the quality of life as well as sound artists, composers, and musicians. That's the end of my introduction. And uh, what I'd like to, to do now is to get everybody up standing and do a little bit of stretching and I'd like to ask you to allow me to guide you through um, a meditation uh, which I call the posture meditation and it will introduce you uh, to some listening and I'll be uh, speaking about it. Uh, along the way. Uh, the first thing uh, about this posture meditation is, is natural stance. Natural stance involves having the feet uh, centered under the shoulders. So the figure about a shoulder width apart. And um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you uh, to allow the energy of your mind to drop down into the soles of the feet and begin to sense the soles of the feet. Um, sense, use your temperature sense to sense the soles of the feet. Use your gravity sense to sense the soles of the feet. Um, and just allow your mind to be there with, with those feet. You know, feet are pretty amazing. I mean, the way they bear our weight and carry us around. And uh, as you do this sensing, I'd also like you to relax your shoulders and uh, let the palms 
drop by your side uh, so that you can sense the energy in the palms of your hands as well. So I'm going to bring in your imagination to allow yourself to imagine roots from the soles of your feet going down through the floor and down into the earth, realizing that roots are very aggressive. Roots uh, can take, it can go around all sorts of obstacles in their search for nourishment. They, uh, uh, they can go around rocks, they can go through various things, they can find, uh, this, the roots are intelligent, they find nourishment, they find nutrients, they find water, and roots can go down, have been found to go down as far as 315 miles in their search. So uh, roots of mushroom systems are enormous and can be found connected uh, distances of 3,000 miles. Roots, for your imagination, can ground you, let your roots ground you to the earth. And let's take a deep breath together and let it out as you are grounded. Um, I'd like you to bring your attention to your tailbone and uh, we're going to travel uh, up the spine but I would like you to visualize, can you imagine visualizing your spine, visualizing each vertebrae lighted up like a neon or something. The spine has polarity and the spine carries messages up and down, um, nervous system. Uh, you gather messages from the earth through the soles of the feet, through your imaginary roots. And this, the spine goes up, connects to the skull and to the top of the, the crown of the head. If you just uh, touch the crown for a moment uh, to activate it. And I'm going to use the imagination to send a beam of light or a thread out into the universe to attach to a star somewhere. And with this uh, beam of light out into the universe, you can imagine that the upper body is free-floating and is anchored into the universe by the, the light beam or the thread. And here we have an interesting situation of balancing between being grounded to the earth and being free-floating in the universe. And <clears throat> the spine is carrying the messages up and down from the universe into the body and down, bringing energy up from the earth, bringing energy down from the universe. And in the system, uh, Asian system of chi energy, uh, energy is free. This is the free energy that I heard talked about today in the panel, the ancient geeks. They didn't talk about chi energy, but 
chi energy is energy of the of the life of life of the universe of all things of all matter of all uh, everything and it's free uh, and it can be gathered uh, from the earth and it can be gathered from the universe and brought into the body and stored there now a thing to consider as you rest in the posture, free-floating and grounded, just resting, letting the shoulders relax, the chin relax, the jaw relax, the eyes relax. The cellular tissue, or the collagen, connective tissue, all the tissues of the body are made of liquid crystal has been discovered fairly recently. Liquid crystal is superconductor. So it means, what it means is that the cells of the body can aggregate and, and communicate instantaneously. And this is what they do. This is the basis of body consciousness. This is what happens when your body protects you from danger by moving suddenly out of the way of danger and you become aware of that slightly after it's happened. The cellular uh, aggregates communicate with the neurons. The neurons are slower than uh, in their transmission and firing than, than cells. Now this body consciousness is part of what was suppressed and I talked about in the opening of my keynote. And so this, uh, this part of our being is what I think needs to be explored and represented, represented in our work in technology, the integration of the body in this uh, tremendous interaction and inter, uh, that takes place in the billions of cells that organize and uh, are the quantum coherence of the body. This is the cooking in the quantum kitchen part. The quantum mechanics uh, describes consciousness. We've never seen quarks. We've never seen photon, uh, uh, particles that are spoken of, muons, uh, gluons and so on. We've seen their tracks. There's, it's possible, I think, to track in the body things that we are, have suppressed and are not necessarily aware of at, the, at a, a cellular level. This is where we need to go to connect with consciousness. To connect our neuronal consciousness with body consciousness. Performers do it. I did it with those dials, those Hewlett-Packard dials, turning the oscillators very, very minutely. I didn't know how to do it. My body knew how to do it. Okay, so now... Um, just to experience a little bit of uh, uh, change, uh, let's uh, 
raise the palms of the hands up and allow the free energy that can come from the universe to come down into the palms of the hands as you stretch upward and the soles of the feet are connected. Feel this stretch and feel whatever it is that you can feel. And noticing the breathing and then bring the palms of the hands to the top of the skull just above and guide the energy down through the center of the body and down right to the belly here just below the navel and allow the sensations however faint they may be to just travel into the body there in Asian practice, this is called the Dantian and the storage of chi. That's like a storage tank that you can store up energy right there. And then kind of relax the palms down. And then uh, bring your palms forward so that you see if you can sense the biodynamic energy that is there existing between the palms of the hands. Some can feel it very close and some can feel it a little far apart. If you sort of just uh, massage that little ball a bit, you may be able to feel it. Okay. All right, and then um, you can relax down again. Just forget about it. And I'll, that's the end of the posture meditation for now. Usually I go on to a number of energy exercises, but uh, the chairs are in the way, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I'm going to uh, ask us to do a brief breath improvisation just to uh, get the breath moving. And uh, if, you do, if you want to sit down, you can, but if you want to stand up, that's fine too. Uh, the breath improvisation is simply that, uh, using, making breath audible, short puffs, long puffs, any kind of puffs, but simply uh, engaging in a playful uh, improvisation with breath as the material. And... I want to ask you to notice how you, how, what your sensations are and follow the progression of sensations as you engage in the improvisation. And then when we finish, maybe it's a three-minute improvisation. Um, at the end of it, uh, following the progression through and noticing the sensations in the, in the body. Okay. So we can just begin. I'm, I'm going to be your listener. So, beginning at any time from this point.
anything you want to ask that's fine too mm. a couple minutes left. In the breath improvisation? Oh, yeah. 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 It it does happen. (laughs) Good girl. She's dangerous, very dangerous. <laughs> okay, you're welcome. See you, see you around. <laughs>